1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 is where we're going to begin, even though I think the worship guide says chapter 4. We're going to cover some of those verses at the end of uh, 3 again, as it really com- connects to the chapter 4, and we'll probably stop at verse 10, though all of chapter 4 is in play. Just fair warning. And there, I'm going to just remind you, we have new people, um, sometimes it takes reminders of what's happening but Corinth is messy. It's a very messy congregation. And, and the irony is the bigger messes that are coming down the next several chapters aren't even what's occupied Paul. He's been focusing on how they are seeking human wisdom. They are wanting human wisdom over godly wisdom. And they have really lost sight of what the cross means. They've lost sight of the essential teachings of Paul in chapter 3. Uh, verse 4, he, he talks about how they are acting merely human. They're, they're acting out of the flesh. And so his goal, and our goal this morning as we read this passage, is to recover our... I'm gonna, sorry, I set a timer and I meant to do that, and I think you all are very appreciative when I do. Um, so our goal in this passage is to, we're, we're continuing this argument, this discussion that Paul's been having, where he's defending his ministry. And I hope, as we look at this this morning, we'll begin to realize we have some of these tendencies ourselves. Not just here at Grace, but really our whole culture uh, of longing for human wisdom over the wisdom of the, of the gospel. So, with that said, let's look at, starting in verse 18 of chapter 3. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, 
because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Let's stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for the Apostle Paul, who is simply a servant, but we give you more praise that these words have been given to us by the work of your Holy Spirit, who not only guaranteed their transfer to us, but then as we read them, you illumine, as Brent prayed earlier, you illumine them to us. We can actually understand. We can look at them. We can pray over them. We can study them. And my prayer this morning is that your truths would reign and that we would walk in a way that is more in light of godly wisdom. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Maybe you've heard the joke. Uh, it's, I, I know I start with joke. I hope I don't do that too much. If I do, email me. I'll, I'll do less jokes. Um, the joke of the two guys are talking about their weekend, and, and he says, what would you do this weekend? And the guy says, well, I got to go up in an airplane. Oh, that's good. No, it was bad. The engines failed. Oh, that's bad. No, it was good. I had a parachute. Oh, that's good. No, it's bad. I had to, um, when I pulled the cord, it didn't open. Oh, that's bad. No, that's good because actually there's a huge haystack I was falling toward that was going to cushion me. Oh, that's good. No, that's bad. There was a pitchfork right in the middle of that haystack. Oh, that's bad. No, I missed the pitchfork. That's good. No, I missed the haystack. Anyway, there are variations of that joke. But it's humorous because we are meaning makers, and we want to interpret everything, don't we? And as things are coming at us, like the joke, we're trying to go, okay, that's good, right? That's bad, isn't it? Isn't that good? And what happens is we've, we've, we've become evaluators of everything, as if we can possibly know why things are happening. And one of the problems with wisdom that's coming from the human side, that's infiltrating Corinth, is it, it really dominates with this idea that you can know everything. If you just learn enough, if you study enough, if you think enough, if you are a good orator and you can use logic and, and skills, you can know why things happen. The problem with that is it's not true, and it's not biblical. And so for Paul, and what I hope we see this morning in this passage, is he's saying, look, you're going to make a lot of mistakes the moment you try to understand things God has not allowed you to understand. And I think that is more pervasive than we've ever understood. Like our whole makeup is trying to figure things out, isn't it? Every little emotion, every little incident in our life, every single glance, we're constantly evaluating, and we're doing it wrongly most of the time. And so for Paul, and what we'll see this morning, is that true godly wisdom really requires that we trust wholeheartedly in God. He is the object of our trust and worship. So, we're going to look at what is this wisdom, um, what are its counterfeits, and how we get it. Those are the three goals this morning. What is this wisdom? Now, I have to be honest, we're not going to look at what it is, we're going to look at what it is by kind of looking at what we do wrongly with it, but I think it will come clear as we do that. Um, and, And the Corinthians thought they were wise. They thought they were more knowledgeable than Paul. He'd become sort of a peon in the realm of intellect to them. They had gone beyond him. Remember in chapter 3, he says, I fed you with milk and you wanted more, but you're not even ready for milk. So there's this sense in which somehow it's been communicated to Paul that they feel like they're beyond what Paul could give them. And not only that, they've begun to judge Paul, right? 
So he even says in chapter 4, I care not whether you judge me. But he says this really profound thing in verse 1 of chapter 4, if you'll look. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and, look at that next phrase, stewards of the mysteries of God. How much do you like mysteries? We really don't like them at all. We want to know how everything works. The second there's a question in our mind, what do we do? Be Siri. You know, why is the sky blue? You know, whatever the question is. We want to know immediately. And what Paul is really telling us is that's not godly. <laughs> not to let me be clear. You can know why things do, and I encourage that study. But it's not godly to, to, to need it to survive. That at some point, you're going to have to accept the way things are. And even flourish by not, while you don't know why things are. Um, the ladies are going through Ecclesiastes, and Emily and I have been talking about it, and I've gone back and looked at some articles. Um, and one, uh, one author on Ecclesiastes, or at least in his one chapter, is uh, J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, has a great chapter on wisdom. And in it, he gives an illustration. And he says this. He says, so he grew up in England, and he loved trains. And I've used a little bit of this illustration before. But he says, if you stand on a platform at York Station, you can watch a constant succession of engines and train movements up and down the line. And it will fascinate you. But you will only be able to form a very rough and general idea of the overall plan in terms of which all these movements are being determined. If, however, you are privileged enough to be taken by one of the higher-ups into the magnificent electrical signal box that lies athwart platform 7 and 8, you will see the longest wall a, a long wall diagram of the entire track layout. Now, this is written before computers, I suppose. But there's this huge diagram that represents five miles in both directions of the station. And on this diagram, Packer explains, little lights show not only what the trains are doing, but you can see the, the guy in charge making the decisions of whether this train should go all the way through or whether it should stop and go to the side or whatever they should do. They're, those decisions are being made in the signal box. And he goes on to say, the mistake we commonly make, and I think we're in this camp, is we think wisdom is getting inside the box. That if I pray enough, if I read my scripture, if my, God, my, con my conduct is holy, I should be able to eventually get in that box and determine the tea leaves of our day. Right? Isn't that what wisdom is? And for Packer, he says, absolutely not. He says, that is not a Christian view of wisdom at all. In fact, people suffering with depression or physical mental illness will drive themselves almost crazy with this kind of futile inquiry. Why is this happening? Trying to understand every little thing and wondering if that's, oh, that's good, oh, that's bad, right? Why is that? And the answer is because God did not give us those attributes. Here's a little theological teaching that theologians say that God, we are made in God's image and we are given some of his attributes. Those are called the communicable attributes. They are communicated to man. You and I have those things. Now, in the fall, they have been greatly damaged, and in redemption, they're being restored. But there are incommunicable attributes that we were never meant to have. Do you know what those are? They all start with the letters O-M-N-I, the omnis. We all want the omnis, right? 
And the one that really speaks to wisdom is omniscience. This idea of all-knowingness. There's omnipresence, everywhere present. Omnipotence, God's all-powerful. And then he's omniscient. Now, now social media is the all-present one, right? I mean, I'm everywhere at once. I don't have to leave my house anymore. I don't even need my driver's license. Millennials don't get driver's license anymore. They sit in their home, and they know what's going on with their York signal box device. But there's also a part of us that wants to know everything and and understand the meaning behind everything. That's really pride-driven. And part of this is um, highlighted even in Ecclesiastes, where some of the women are studying this. Um, My wife and I are talking about it. In chapter 9, um, he said, the, the, the preacher says this in verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent. And you go, what in the world? What kind of wisdom literature is that? Everything I've ever thought Proverbs taught was, other, another book of the Bible, was that if I do certain practical things, I'll gain riches, I'll be successful, right? How, how, do you, how do you put the two together? Well, the difference is, what Proverbs is teaching, and we agree and affirm wholeheartedly, that all things being equal, right? All things being equal, when you follow God's principles, success will happen. More than if you're lazy, you don't plant and do in the right season, you don't save, all those things. But what Ecclesiastes is dealing with is interpreting. That's different. The interpretation of events is different. It is a mistake to just look at an outcome. Um, this is going to be really close, and this isn't even an illustration, but I was looking at our books. We're, we're kind of organizing my office, and we came across Boone Pickens. The first billion is the hardest. Um, we take guys like him. He's amazing. He's built a beautiful stadium. There's other guys. And you look at guys like that, and you go, how do I do it? He did it. How do I do it? But the problem is, that's not a good logical methodology. Because maybe a thousand people tried it his way, and he's the only one that made it. And we try to read backwards from the end. Does that make sense? Here's, I saw a Far Side cartoon years ago of a praying mantis um, looking at about a thousand little praying mantises, the babies. And their eyes are just bulging like bug eyes because they're praying mantises. But they're also shocked. Because here's what the parent praying mantis said. I have to be perfectly honest with all of you. In about one week, 95% of you will be dead. And uh, so they're like, what? Those are the statistics. But what we do is we take the 5% who are 102, some person made it to 102, and the news media shows up with a microphone. How'd you do it? Well, I don't know. I smoked Marlboros and I watched soap operas, you know? And you're like, well, that's what I'm going to do. No. So... The point is, we get our wisdom turned around and we are trying to interpret everything by what's happening to us. And the scriptures are clear that that doesn't work. But because we're so passionate for this, it it creates in us a lack of reality. We don't know what to do with negativity. We don't know what to do with the broken things. Packer goes on to say that most of us live in a dream world with our heads in the clouds and our feet off the ground we never see the world and our lives in it as they really are. Because why, why not? Because if we're not grasping the Scripture's teaching of wisdom, then what we're having to do like the Corinthians is reinterpret things and get rid of the broken things. Get rid of the problems. Right? Ignore the mistakes. Ignore the people who make us feel bad. Cut off relationships. Whatever you have to do 
to keep yourself isolated. But that's not what scriptures teach, right? About true wisdom. True wisdom is Job. Is Job at the end of his life, he's had all these disasters and, and um, all his friends, or not all of his friends, several of his friends had come and tried to explain why they had happened. Finally, Job says this in chapter 42. He says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And he repents. In other words, he realizes God had not given him the insights to all the reasons these things happened. And that was never the intention. And I just want to start off this discussion, although we're halfway through it, by saying, stop trying to assess everything. Stop trying to figure out how everything's going to advance you in a way you want to go. There are some counterfeits in this passage that we see that spring from that mentality, that spring from that heart of wanting everything to to make perfect sense. One of them, this is point two, wisdom's counterfeits. One of them is judgmentalism. Paul says in verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now, in a chapter later, he's going to say, expel the immoral brother. That sounds like judgmentalism, right? And I can't really parse it all right here, but let me say this. There's a, it's different to say that is sin that's not judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is saying, you are bad. I, you are rotten. I've already pronounced a proclamation on who you are. See, they had already taken Paul and discounted him. Right? They didn't say, we don't like his teachings. We're struggling with some of what he said here in light of Scripture. They just got rid of him in their minds. And he goes on to explain. Maybe this will help us understand what's wrong with it. It's not just that it's mean, though it is. It's not that it's just horrible for community, though it is, but it's the worst part about the kind of judgment he's talking about is it's completely pride-driven. Verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time when the Lord will come. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. We are a very cynical people. And we think we can know someone else's heart. Just by... You could be, you've been around it, and maybe you've done it. Someone utters three sentences, and you can say, I can tell you all about that person. I, you, you just said three things, I can tell you all about them. They're completely this. Judgment. Boom. If you have said this in the last few months, you're in this category, and this is going to be every one of us probably on some level, I don't like that person. You're not allowed to say that. Just FYI, this is my, I'm going to exhort you, you can't say that. Stop saying that. I hear people, I do, and if I say it, confront me. You cannot say, I don't like Mike. By the way, I don't think there's one Mike in this, in this congregation. I don't like Mike. Now you can say, maybe that person hurts my feelings. Maybe I need to go talk to them. You know, Doug preached on reconciliation. But my point is, you can't just dismiss people. Because that is pride-driven. And that is saying, like the Corinthians, even though I don't have all the information, I'm making a judgment on that. Boom. That's one of the counterfeits. The second counterfeit that we've really been dealing with lately is this boasting in men, and it's more of what I'll call a positive twist. That was negative. So the negative thing we do, uh, and they're both negative, unfortunately, for all of you who are ready for positive stuff. 
um, they're, it, they're negative in that they're wrong, but one is uh, judging is sort of, I want that person out of my life, I'm judging them. The other one is boasting in what is good. They, they were boasting in Apollo, so they were boasting in some leader, and they're saying, this person has it going on, right? And they were looking at sort of outward circumstances. You see that in verse uh, 21, by the way. So let no one boast in men, verse 321. We looked at it last week. For all things are yours. But then Paul does this amazing thing, starting in verse 8, where he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Right? Without us, you have become kings. In verse 9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle. So what Paul is doing is he's juxtaposing their view of success with the reality of the apostles' lives. And it's not going so hot. And what we tend to do in our culture is we look for the success. And when that becomes the de facto way we know if something's working or not. This ministry is working. Why? People are coming. Jesus lost a whole bunch of people. The Savior of the universe turned a ton of people away in John 6 by preaching the gospel. I'm not saying we don't want to grow. That just cannot be it. People are coming, or uh, I feel happy when I hear this teaching, or whatever. We, we just look to human examples. And again, going back to that Ecclesiastes, the race is not to the swift. Sometimes ministries are going to be great. Sometimes things you're doing are going really well. Sometimes you are walking with Jesus and bad things happen. How do you interpret that? How are you, do you think you've done something wrong? Do you immediately think like our culture does? Well, if you would have eaten a different way, that may not have come to you, right? If you raised your children differently, this wouldn't have happened. Let me affirm two things. There are great ways to raise your children, and it will go better. There are great ways to eat, and you will be healthier. Again, there are great principles we follow. But let's be careful when we're talking to people or looking at our own lives. We don't constantly evaluate everything. If you would have just done it a little different, if you would have invested in this bond instead of that stock, I think things would have gone better for your 401k or whatever. Clearly, I'm out of my depth. Um, why do we do those things? Because we don't like to believe that we are broken. We don't like to believe we need a Savior. It feels so much better to think I can go to YouTube and find a good video and walk away with a sense of righteousness that if I do X, Y, or Z better, my Christian journey is going to go great. If I follow that person, I do these habits, I do these things, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and you cannot evaluate yourself along those lines. Wisdom, then, is not looking at those things. There's a third thing to counterfeit, and that is this, going beyond Scripture. There is a tendency we all have to take Scripture, but wanting to go beyond it. In fact, oftentimes, we, we, think, we say things like we get the Bible, we read our Bible, we know it, but we really don't spend much time in it. Let's look at the, where is this coming from in our text. In chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, Paul's saying, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefits, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. There's like five possibilities on, on what is written. What does Paul, Paul mean there? The two most prominent 
are what's written in this letter or what's written in Scripture. The only ch- challenge I have to just saying what's written in this letter is he's quoting Job in, 3, 8, in 319, and he's quoting Psalms. So he's clearly thinking holistically, the whole Bible. So when Paul looks at you and I and says, do not go beyond what's written, he's affirming the importance of Scripture. So Scripture is very important. And here's that place in every sermon when you hear, read your Bible. And everybody's eyes just want to go back in their sockets. Why? Honestly, the reason is, if I told you that, you know, when you, you, on the internet, you're kind of, there's those ads. If you, this guy followed a Bible code and made millions. Have you ever seen those kind of ads? Now all of a sudden your Bible becomes cool again. It's like, what? If I can make money, well, in the same way, we've lost a sense that our Bible can fix us. We've lost a sense that there's actual help. Again, because we want everything to go according to our understanding of wisdom. And there's a sense that we know, if I read my Bible, there are limits. Um, I, I don't remember when I first learned the verse, but it's easy to memorize at least the location of it. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Can you remember that? Who knows that? Everyone knows that. No one knows what it says, but they've heard it. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children and forever, that we may do all the words of His law. The point there that I think is extrapolated here in 1 Corinthians is there is Scripture, and sometimes we go, this is great, but I want to know more. Or I want something outside of this. This is, this is helpful, but I, I need more. And that's what the Corinthians are struggling with. If you think back in chapter 2, Paul says, look, the cross is central. And the Corinthians, you, you can almost hear them saying, we know, we know, we know. Thanks for the milk. But we're ready for more. So how do we actually get to a place where we want the wisdom of Scripture? How do we get this? Paul says, and this is the title of the sermon, in verse 18, if anyone among you thinks that you are wise in this age, let him become a fool that you may become wise. And then again in verse 10 of chapter 4, we, the apostles, are fools for Christ's sake. What does that mean, becoming a fool? Paul is saying yet again, the way up is the way down. You and I long, I mean, I throw you in this. If you're not in this camp and I say you, don't put yourself in that word. Some of you, and I sometimes, want the world to like us. One of the things that I, I remember doing RUF and just when I taught students, especially when I had these conversations at coffee shops with people that weren't believers, it pained me to think they would think I was a Christian, like a foolish, fantasy-believing Christian. It just, so I, I did everything I could to sound intelligent and to make it sound right. But at the end of the day, I've got to go, guys, what I believe looks foolish. That's all I got. I mean, you, I think, again, you can do a lot to, to explain what you believe, but at some point, we are saying some crazy things. And... The world's looking at you going, you're kind of nuts, right? Are you willing to be a fool for your beliefs? Now, not just apologetically, when I have an argument with an atheist, that one time in a decade, but daily, are you willing to be made to feel a fool? 
Are you willing to go, you know what? My house doesn't look the way I want. My schedule doesn't look the way I want. My family, my job, whatever. And that doesn't define me. Foolish feelings. What are you defined by? Last week we saw this amazing verse that's like Paul breaking out into doxology in verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. And I asked this question, I used the Jenga block illustration and I asked you, what are the blocks? And I didn't, I, I've talked to some folks since then, and I probably didn't do the greatest job. That's a shocker. Um, but I, the point I was getting at, the blocks are critical. The things you would call a Jenga block in this illustration are things you need. You would never say, well, I don't need my wife anymore. I mean, no, keep your wife or your job or your hobby. The issue is, what kind of weight are you resting on? Are you forcing it to hold the weight? Because only Jesus can do that. And becoming a fool is not allowing it to have that kind of weight. So what's going on here in Corinth is this. In verses 8 on, Paul is exposing a mistaken view of eschatology. Have I made anyone fall asleep there? Huh? In times. They were under the idea that they had what's called a real over-realized eschatology. Let me, let me explain. They thought... You should be living now all the benefits of, of God and Christ. Right? But it wasn't really a religious thing. It was kind of coming from their culture. So it's this perfect infusion that I think we have today in America. You know, in Stillwater, every other person, maybe every person's a Christian. I mean, right? I'm a Christian. But we've sort of commingled our religion with the, with the world around us. And we really do live like you should not have any pain in this life. Right? That's an over-realized eschatology. That even though we wouldn't attribute it necessarily all to religion, our culture, by and large, believes if there's a problem, you've made a mistake. So your job is to get rid of that problem as fast as possible. And so in verse 8, Paul says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. I think he's doing two things at once. He's amazing. I think on one hand, he's being slightly facetious. A little bit. Right? You think you're kings, you are kings. Great. You've done it without us. Great. But I think he's carrying over from verse 22. Already you have all you want. And if you're, I'm sure the, the audience at this point has been following his line of argument. And he's, he's, he's really preaching to them. The gospel gives you everything you need. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. What does he mean? You don't need Paul or Apollos, remember? You don't need whoever you're gravitating toward as a house group leader. You have Jesus, and you've become rich. And listen to the best line of this entire passage. And would that you did reign. Would it, what if you would just live this gospel message that you say you believe. He goes on. That we would share in the rule with you. Okay. Illustration for me. Every other illustration is Braveheart. The scene from Braveheart, if you don't know Braveheart, you've got to watch it just to go to church here. 
Brian Larison. There's a scene where William Wallace has finally become known by the Scottish lords. They've knighted him. They like him. They're in this hall somewhere, maybe a church. And then they all start fighting over who's going to do what. Because remember, the Scottish lords had lands in Scotland and lands in England. and Well, William Wallace and his guys just drift out the back door. They're not going to have any of that. But Robert of Bruce, who's that character that's sort of like us. I mean, I really do think we identify with him. You love William Wallace, but you kind of love your dad, and you love the land, and you love the world. And he's that torn character throughout the movie. And he, and he goes up and he gets to William and he kind of implores him not to leave. And William just says, the people will follow you if you would just lead them. And when he says that, you're like, and he goes, and so would I. And Bruce's face just melts. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul looking at you, going, the gospel that you have is so true that if you would just believe it, you would rule and reign in such a way that the apostles would want to join you. and follow, Not follow you. He didn't say that, but we would come alongside of you. Is that your passion? Is that your hope? Or are you Robert of Bruce? You've got your dad up in the belfry or whatever that thing's called up there with this thing going on and, and he's keeping you one foot in the world and one foot with the movement. Where are you? Okay, I've got, I, I, I'm running out of time, but I've got one more illustration. I'm going to do it. Paul says, be imitators of me. What does that mean? That, that to me is the proof. He says that later in the, in the chapter, that he's not condoning their acting the way they're acting. You don't have to be poor. You don't have to be all the negatives that he goes through. But you certainly don't want to look down on it, Right? And so here's how the conclusion, just a helpful thought for me. I played the game of chess. And when I was getting into chess, I was playing a friend who was even newer to the game than I am. And he's smarter than me, uh, which was not good for me at the time or now. And we're playing the game. And I don't know if you know chess, but the king, you want, you want to protect the king. The king doesn't do a whole lot in the game, but you've got to protect the king. But the queen, that is the most awesome peace on the board, right? So much so, the queen can do what the bishops can do, what the rooks can do, and that she can go as far as she wants to go until she hits somebody and takes them out. So much so that if you're not careful, you start protecting the queen. Well, I'm playing my buddy, and I had that moment where I took his queen. And I just felt like, yeah, I don't think I said that, but I just, you could just see this, he had this look on his face, and I'm just like, I've won the game. The odds are I've won the chances of him coming back from this are slim. This is amazing. And in two moves, I was checkmated. It's called a queen sacrifice. And I went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows because my view of wisdom was looking at the wrong measurement. I was looking at this piece that doesn't even matter. We do that. We look at all the wrong stuff, not the king. And Paul says, and this is the final thing you have to grasp, is in verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. If you're living a life that is somehow bothered by the idea of the afterlife, if you're somehow bothered by the idea of Jesus returning, 
that almost feels like it's going to sort of you know, take away some of the things you've been looking forward to. You have a messed up view of eschatology. And I'm in there too. Sometimes I do that. Have you ever had that thought, I want Jesus to return, but maybe I want to get married first. You know? All the people who have been married for years is like, no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> Sorry, I love. Let me married first. Jesus coming is our longing. You've been covered with Christ and he is coming. Is that your hope? Is that your longing? Now, you think I'm closing and I'm not. Here's my application. I'm going to give you, I gave this one last week. Everyone's like, I love assignments. I got like texts. I won't say from whom. Here's the new assignment. What do you, I was reading through this worship guide. Doug and I, believe it or not, actually meet, and he works harder on it than I do, but we, we go over this stuff. Here's my encouragement to you. You just heard a sermon. I'm about to conclude it. We're going to have the Lord's Supper and move on. Take this home. This is your assignment. Tomorrow morning for your quiet time, you're like, what is that? Here's what it is. Get up 10 minutes earlier than normal, pull this out, and read through this in light of what we've talked about this morning. When you get to a song like God of Wonders, if you choose to sing it, that's fine. You can hum it, or you can just move on. When you get to that confession of sin, pray that confession. Confess your sin. Read the assurance. Because everything in here is pointing to what we've just talked about this morning. All the way through to the confession that we're about to have in a second from 1 Corinthians 1. My encouragement is that you do that all the while saying, Lord, I want the wisdom that comes through being a fool to the world. Does that make sense? That you would see Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, the triune God is everything. And that your day would be shaped around that. That would be a great thing. If you want to text me after you've done that, I would love that. That would be awesome. I may get back to you, or I may not. So please do that. I will be doing it with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for worship. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you that we don't have to know everything. In fact, you've made us finite. That when we are being the most creaturely, the way we're acting is we are calm and relaxed like a weaned child in his mother's arms, not needing anything. Psalm 23, Lord, not wanting, just trusting the Good Shepherd. And Father, this world will challenge us. We will get information. We will have feelings, emotions, so many things that try to convince us we've done something wrong. We need to make an adjustment. We need to quickly do something Teach us to rest. Teach us to trust. Teach us to press into you, Holy Father. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.